Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. Hello, friends. I'm so happy you're here. I know it's been a heavy and a rough couple of weeks with just the news all over the world. And with that, I would just like to start with a quick moment of silence for Ukraine and all that is happening on that side of the world. Okay, amen. Uh, So today I have an exciting conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper about her recent book called Fortune. So Fortune is actually the name of Lisa's first non-Indigenous ancestor born on American soil. And she bore the brunt of the nation's first race, gender, and citizenship laws. As uh, Lisa traces her family's history through succeeding generations, she shows how American ideas, customs, and laws robbed her ancestors and the ancestors of so many others of their humanity and flourishing. As Lisa lights a path through national and religious history, she clarifies exactly how and when the world broke and shows the way to redemption for us all. The book culminates with a vision of truth-telling, reparation, and forgiveness that leads to beloved community. Reparation is about repair, she says. To repair the world, we must first understand how the world broke. If the break was fundamentally spiritual and relational, the remedy must heal our souls and repair the way we relate to each other in the world. Belief shapes the world. But what shapes belief? asks Lisa. Well, it's stories, and hidden in these stories of the oppressed is the key to our collective repair. I so enjoyed this conversation, friends, and I learned so much from her book and from just chatting with her, and so I hope you learn a lot too, and I hope you enjoy it, and welcome to The Protagonistas. Okay, well, Lisa, thank you so much for chatting with me and congratulations on your book release. Um, yeah, if you want to, yeah, no problem. Um, so yeah, if you want to talk to folks and let them know about your spiritual background, I'd love um, to have folks just kind of start there. Well, my spiritual background, you know, I can never really talk about who I am without talking about my ancestors. Yeah. And I'm learning more and more about the spiritual background of my ancestors, but on my mother's side, Basically, we were Black Episcopalians from the time that there were Black Episcopalians. Um, And so we go way back in the city of Philadelphia and then also in in South Carolina, going to the Episcopal Church, the Black Episcopal Church. Um, I, but I did not grow up in that tradition. My, I mean, I, I was baptized Episcopal. We went to church every other year on a good year. But I really discovered Jesus and God and prayer and this personal relationship in the context of white evangelical church. Mm. Um, And really that movement that began in the beginning of the the 1980s, um, the religious right, which I don't 
think anybody at that time, we would have characterized it as religious, right? But looking back on it, yeah, that's pretty much it. (laughs) I was was told that I had to become a Republican in order to be a Christian pretty soon after I walked down the aisle and gave my life to Jesus. Um, And, uh, you know, and, 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 but, but, you know, as much as that part of, of the faith experience of the evangelical faith experience was something I had to get over later. There were, there were real values, like real values. They, that, that, that they're, that that stream of the faith instilled like reverence for the scripture. Right. And so it's ironic. Now it's my reverence for the scripture now that has led me to call for reparations, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. the, my reverence for the scripture now that has led me to honor my elders as Jesus did and as the writers of Jesus' story did when they listed his elders, right? They listed mm-hmm. his ancestors. Um, it's the reverence for the story now that helps me to understand the need for justice, that it's not a social justice thing. It's actually something that's lifted up on the very first page of the whole Bible. <laughs> right, right. So, so you know, I, I credit those years in the evangelical, white evangelical world with giving me the tools that I needed to be able to understand what this Bible thing was and, and how mm-hmm. to dig into it. But I actually had to also overcome whiteness in order for my eyes to see what these brown writers were trying to write, right. trying to communicate. Um, because I was just as much as anybody else, um, you know, surrounded by people with white eyes, people with, with European eyes, people with eyes born and lived and loved and died in in the context of empire. So they really didn't know any other way to read the text than through the lens of empire. But it's ironic because Jesus' people were brown and colonized by empire, and empire right. killed Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's the most ironic thing in the world that now the locus of orthodoxy in the church is located in the white um, imperial church. It's located in Europe. It's located uh, in the halls of academia um, rather than with the people who are on the underside of oppression. So one of the big shifts that I've made over the like the last decade has been to interrogate <clears throat> the assumptions that I used to come to the text with and ask fundamental questions about the movement of power in the text fundamental questions about the context of the text, the political, cultural, social, diplomatic uh, context within which the text was written and the the original hearers would have heard it and discerning there, what is he he or she actually trying to say? Mm. And then from there, finally getting to the point where most Bible studies begin, which is the implications. Well, this is what I think this means for me. Right, right. You can't know what this means for you if you haven't actually figured out what it means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. um, my spiritual heritage is is one that is uh, rooted by my ancestors in the Black Episcopal Church. But in my own practice and experience, uh, I really came to faith in the context of the white evangelical church. And what I'd say now is, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking, I'm seeking Brown Jesus. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's so good. And I, I so resonate with that because I, you know, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church and, you know, in the Latino Church. Um, and yeah, and I really um, began wrestling with my faith more seriously within white evangelicalism. Uh, and I always say it's so it's so funny. <laughs> funny is not the right word, but um, it Ironic. is through. Right. It is through my you know reading of scripture where I also fe- felt this draw toward my ancestors, this draw toward my ancestral faith, this draw. And that sort of thing makes the white evangelical church uncomfortable, right? Like talking about your ancestors, which I'm like, but I got this from the Bible, you know? Isn't that deep? I don't know. Where's that come from? Right. I mean, I'll tell you, here's my theory. I think it comes from the, I mean, enormous work that people of European descent had to do in order to become white. Right. The work of cutting off. Yeah their past, cutting Mm -hmm. themselves off from the past of their struggle, Mm -hmm. the past of their own subjugation, the past of their wrongs done in order to get where they are. And so they have obliterated that past and with it, their ancestors in order to propagate the myth of the self-made man, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is just not true. It's not true. Right. Yeah. And so I think um, what what it sounds like to me, and, and this is sort of what's been my journey, a lot of it is just a reclaiming, right? Is that what you feel like you're, and I, and that's what I'm, I, I, you know, I'm reading in your work, which I, I find so powerful, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also very complicated. And I think um, in Awalita Faith, in my own book, I talk about this thing called research grief, where you know, for people of color, this is so personal. Like you're not just doing history, you're digging deep into your bones and you're yeah. ripping apart your insides. Right. Yeah, um, and you're, you know, you're highlighting, right. Like in your, you're um, celebrating the strength and the resilience of your ancestors, but at the same time, you're wrestling with the trauma and the oh, pain. Yeah. And so it's just so complicated. So I, can you just talk to me about that journey of, I mean, I don't know if you want to call it research grief, but that's just your journey of doing that hard, beautiful work. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a good way to put it. I mean, in the prologue, actually, I talk about this, that I was actually afraid to begin the process of going to the land um, to see what actually happened. I already knew about Fortune Game McGee. I knew about Betty McGee. I, I knew their stories, but I didn't really know. Like I knew what I had right. read in a book on, on free black African-Americans, you know, in the colonial period, I knew that. Right. But that was a paragraph, right? Like a paragraph about fortune, another paragraph about Betty, another, you know, um, Humphrey. And that's all I knew. But I didn't know their context. Right. And it's not till you know their context that you really begin to get to know them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what their context would be. And I didn't know how much else I would find. Um, and so it scared me. Mm-hmm. I think people of European descent are scared for different reasons. I think they tend to be scared of the possible shame that they will encounter and the choices that their ancestors made. Um, and I don't, I don't understand the level to which they carry that shame personally, but they do. Mm-hmm. They, that's why they, they try to escape it so, so much. But I think my experience as one of African descent in America, who also has the stories of, of indigenous descent um, and certainly, um, certainly does have indigenous descent in the Caribbean for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's, um, I think that there's 
a way that I did experience secondhand trauma mm-hmm. um, in the course of researching and then writing down the stories. Because as a writer, yeah. you know, as a writer, you got to tell the story. Right. And the best way to tell the story is to show the story. And to show the story, you have to get inside the moment. Mm-hmm. And as I got inside the moment for Lizzie, as she was about to bury her grandmother, Leah Ballard, who had just passed away and just imagining that moment for her and all that went through her mind, you know, Mm -hmm. that led her to choose to leave the land that her family had only known for like more than a century. Um, So how could she make that choice to leave? Boy, it had to be bad. Had to Mm -hmm. be bad. Right. Um, and leave two of her children also behind mm-hmm. so that she could make it up north um, passing because people had to figure out ways to survive in this, this post-slavocracy that wasn't really post, it was still going, mm-hmm. but just mm-hmm. in different form in the form of Jim Crow. And so she figured out a way to survive that she had was the way of passing. And so she passed and she was able to establish herself, like own her own home here in Mm -hmm. Philadelphia and call for her children, her darker children, of which my grandmother was one, to come north. And then she got Mm -hmm. found out and put in the back of the kitchen, um, in the back of the restaurant, in the kitchen to bake for the rest of her life. She was Mm -hmm. a baker for the rest of her life. Became a renowned baker, actually, at at the Grand Hotel and fed her community with with, um, her leftover baked goods every night Mm -hmm. during the Great Depression. So, I mean, I think, I think that reading or not reading, telling, showing Lizzie's story and, oh, my mom, Mm -hmm. my mom's story. Oh my gosh. I heard so many things in the midst of interviewing her that I had never heard before. So that, that chapter was actually among the hardest to write. Let me just say, all of the chapters were incredibly hard to write. Yeah. Really were. This this was a four-year writing project, a 30-year research project, four years to write. And normally, I mean, you know, as a writer, it doesn't take you that long. It shouldn't take Mm. you that long to write a book. It usually (laughs) takes me two months to write a book, right? So, but four years. And partly that was because of the emotional. Right. um, Weight. Weight or thickness that I had to press through as a writer to be able to write it down. And the story about my mom as a little girl just killed me. Mm-hmm. So I spent months writing that, yeah. that, that chapter, because it took me about that long to be able to, to inhabit it. Right. Right. Inhabit it. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about how this you know, I, I mean, writing the book alone was four years, but this journey has been 30 years. Um, I know like now, you know, 23andMe and Ancestry.com is like in, but like you've been doing this for like decades. Can you talk to us just about how you started this journey and what kind of, you know, and as you've gotten to where you are now, just, just, yeah, just all What's about it, right? Yeah. The process. Yeah. So, so here's the thing is that with time technology develops, right? So I began this journey 30, literally 30 years ago, 1991 on the phone with my mom after having watched dances with wolves, Mm. (laughs) like most of the country, right? Mm -hmm. So I watched dances with wolves and, and I wept. I mean, I just could not stop weeping 
when he hit the planes, I felt like, and it was conscious in my mind, I felt like I was a meeting, meeting a part of myself that I never knew. And mm-hmm. I had in the back of my mind, my, my grandmother, I had bugged her to death and she finally, you know, let out that, yes, we're part Native American, but don't ever tell anybody because they'll think you're trying to pass for mm-hmm. white. So I never did. I never told anybody. Mm-hmm. And then I watched Dances with Wolves and, and, and part of me just wanted to know those right. people in my past that I didn't know and I didn't never met. And there was something in me that called to me to get to know these people. And so I sat on the phone with my mom and I just started to sketch out my very first family tree, which I still have to this day. <laughs> and I didn't, I don't know if she didn't know the names or whatever, but I don't have names on that family tree. I'll just have, you know, grandpa lived this year to this year, great grandpa this year to that year, great, great grandpa, you know, that kind of thing. And we only traced, um, we only traced the men, which tells you how um, patriarchal <laughs> the family actually was. And I had no mm-hmm. idea. So, you know, we are very patriarchal and didn't even realize it, but yes, that's, that's who we, we were. Um, but bottom line is that's what we did. We traced, we traced the men and, but, you know, and then my mom went to the national archives and she was the first person to discover the Henry Lawrence that I talk about. One mm-hmm. of the Henry Lawrence's that I talk about in my chat in the chapter on the Lawrence's, um, you know, if you'll recall in that chapter, I offer two possibilities for who Henry could have been because mm-hmm. of the confusion of identity that was happening post-Civil War. It's just incredibly hard to track people and particularly people okay. with such mixed and, and shifting identities as in ethnic identities, racial identities, um, different races, different years of the census, given depending on who's doing the census. Um, and so, so our search began trying to figure out who was Henry Lawrence. But about a decade into, maybe actually 15 years into that search, my mom discovered the McGee's and games. She discovered Fortune Game McGee and Sambo Game. And, and she thought, maybe is this fortune related to us? And I don't know what, what raised that for her, but we basically tracked that down and realized now through DNA clustering that yes, we were in the same area and yes, we shared DNA with several of those family members and the cluster seems to land on Humphrey fortune. And likely it was an illegitimate birth. In other words, not married somebody, somebody he either raped or somebody Mm -hmm. that he had a love affair with. We do not know. can't really say, but bottom line is that there is a DNA cluster and it makes a lot of sense. So, Mm -hmm. and then Humphrey fortune, um, is most likely to go back to Fortune Game McGee about four, three or four generations before him, three generations before him. Um, I'm sorry, two generations before him. And then the third generation is Maudlin McGee mm-hmm. and Sambo Game, who are the original couple that came together in, in 1687. Wow. Um, and the reason why this became so significant for me, this, this family line, is because, first of all, my ancestor that we knew his name and we were just looking for him. He was free on the census before the civil war. He was, his name was there on a Mm -hmm. census, Mm -hmm. which is not what you find with people of African descent. If they're enslaved, they're on the slave schedule and they're, they are listed next to their master's name with only their, their race as in black or mulatto um, or, or Indian eye for Indian or, um, uh, 
and also uh, their their age, right? What age mm-hmm. did they said they were? So to see Philip Fortune on the census listed before the end of the Civil War in the area where we know the Fortunes lived, we were like, "What is this? What is this?" And then my mom said, "You know, it's just like stuff remembers, he remembers. Right. You know, my grandmother told me that they were free, and you wow. know." My grandfather told me they were uppity. <laughs> they were some highfalutin black people. Like, oh. So we started to do more and more research and, and realized that this line likely does connect back to Fortune McGee. And Fortune McGee's body absorbed the terror of the very first race laws mm-hmm. in the state of Maryland, the first round of, of race laws. And those came only two years after Virginia, which were the first race laws ever on American soil, before it was even America in the colonies. Hey everyone, it's Kat. As a space for highlighting the stories of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color, this podcast has been important for so many listeners. And I would not be able to do this podcast if it weren't for the support of every single one of you. But beyond listening, you can help the show in other ways too. The first is obviously by heading over to your podcast app of choice and writing us a review. It helps the show greatly and doesn't cost you a dime to do it. That said, if you do have the funds to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas to learn more how your dollars can go to help fuel the growth of this podcast. For just a cup of coffee per month, you can keep this important work going. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas. And so I began to realize then that this is a story that is not just about our family. This is America's story. Right. And then began to think about each of the, each of the lines that we were tracing, the Weeks line, um, the Ballard line, Johnson line, um, the Lawrence line, all of them, they all intersected simply because they were here, right? right. If you're here, you're going to intersect with the stuff that happens while you're here. Mm-hmm. And they intersected with the policy decisions that were made that created race in America. Mm. So I Mm. wanted to know how did those policy decisions impact their life, their futures, the possibilities of their flourishing? What was the cost and how do we fix it? Yeah. And you also talk about, um, when you talk about like the race laws, for example, in Maryland, um, just the church's role in all of that and how the church, um, so I don't know if you want to maybe talk a little bit about that, about what your discovery was, um, you know, when it comes to the church's role. And yeah. So, so those very first race laws in Maryland declared because the laws are never made because somebody thinks something's a good idea or Mm -hmm. or even that it's right. Laws are created in order to solve for real problems on the ground or for perceived problems on the ground. So the race law, the first race law in Maryland was created to solve for the problem they perceived um, of white women, Irish, Ulster, Scott women who were indentured and were working right alongside enslaved black men, falling in love with them, marrying them and having children. Mm-hmm. And there were about 600 mixed race children, white and black, that were born in the colonial era, in, in um, era in uh, Maryland and Delaware alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of them trace back to white women. Mm-hmm. Hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
what's the deal there? What is the deal? What you see is you see the legislature, the General Assembly, pass a law that says they're not going to have it. And in order to stop this from happening, for two reasons, one, their ego, and the other, because mixed-race children present a conundrum in terms of their status, whether they should be slave or free. Right. They decided that they were going to change the law so that white women who got married to enslaved Black men would now themselves be enslaved by their husband's master. Mm. And their children would be enslaved in perpetuity. And so that was 1664. That was the very first race law in Maryland, the colony of Maryland, where my where Fortune was born just 23 years later. Now, over the course of those years, um, several years, you began to see, they began to see that planters were taking advantage of this now. And they were forcing their indentured white women to marry enslaved black men so that they could profit over more time, seven more years on the indentured woman's, actually not seven years, forgive me, so that they could profit off of her free labor, right? So now she becomes enslaved for much longer until her husband dies and the free free labor of their children in perpetuity. So they were forcing them to get married and have kids in order to increase their profit margin. So this Catholic colony, you know, the, the General Assembly clutches its pearls and says, ooh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. So they, they changed the law or they changed the way, they didn't change the law, they changed the way that it's administrated. And so instead of planters having the power to decide who gets enslaved or who gets indentured, now that power is placed in the hands of the church. Mm-hmm. And over the next basically century, the church then is the one that manages who gets enslaved, and who gets indentured. The church holds the keys to freedom and the the keys to oppression. The church is the one responsible for exacting the oppression. And the church often actually owned its own slaves and and was awarded indentured servants in court. Um, And so the church became a part of that. And lest you think indenture is just, you know, a bad job, you know, Mm -hmm. that you have to endure for seven years. That is not it. Indenture was basically slavery with a time limit. Indenture was having feet lopped off, having fingers and whole hands lopped off if you stole a piece of bread, having being quartered, literally drawn and quartered if you tried to escape, um, being hung. These are the things that happened to indentured servants um, in the colonial era. And the only thing that was different was that there was a time limit that your, mm-hmm. your, your agony would end within seven years if you were um, the adult. If you were the child later on, um, when Fortune is born in 1687, the reason why she is indentured and not, um, not enslaved is because the laws had shifted over time such that it became, they, they, they revoked the whole thing about white women being enslaved they thought, oh, that, that's not good, right? Or that's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead they made it so that if your ancestor, if your ancestry traces back to a white woman, you cannot be enslaved. And white women could not be enslaved, but they could be indentured. And the children would be indentured for even longer if it was illegitimate um, at first. And then even longer if it was a black person later, if the man was black. And so 
so we we have this moment in the courtroom when Fortune is standing there in the courtroom and about to receive her sentence. And I was imagining, you know, what must she be feeling? She's 18 years old. She had mm-hmm. lived free, actually, under one of the laws when they had revoked, you know, slavery for white women. And that no, there was no penalty anymore. So she had lived free for 18 years, but somehow she ended up in court again because of her mixed race birth. And she was indentured until the age of 31. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, the injustice of it. And yeah. it turned out two generations after her then were indentured, um, likely because of exploitation, sexual exploitation and assault that was happening at the hands of their indenturers. And the reason why I say that is because when I did a DNA match um, and on ancestry DNA, um, before they made it really hard to find the trace DNA, now you have to have X amount in order for you to see anything. Mm-hmm. But before they did that, I was doing my search and there were pages of matches with mm-hmm. the names of the people, the surnames of the people who had indentured my family. Mm-hmm. The Day family and the Fuchs family. And um, it's, and I mean, I'll tell you, the names of the men, any men are never mentioned mm-hmm. in reference to my family, but these children didn't come out of nowhere. Right. They came likely out of the rape, out of rape of, from those uh, from those family members, the men who saw this as their property, something right. for them to use when they wanted and to dominate when they needed. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, so earlier you talked about just like land and context and um, yeah, just how place really has you know we we there's so much that we get and we glean and we learn um about ourselves and um about our ancestors just literally from place from land um and from my understanding you moved back to the area that your family or your ancestors were from um in Philadelphia to a house what I think it was like two blocks from where the one block from my grandmother wow Wow. Can you, you know, talk to us about that move and and what it's like to be there, you know, in that place, in that land? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's really haunting in a lot of ways. Um, it's illuminating in a lot of ways. Um, I moved back here while writing Fortune, actually inspired mm-hmm. um, by the process of writing the book. I was on a Zillow map. Um looking for, I didn't realize I was on a Zillow map, actually. I was just looking for the land that Hiram Lawrence lost to eminent domain um, at the at the beginning of writing the Lawrence chapter. And I found myself on this map with all these numbers and I didn't know what the numbers were. And I finally realized it was Zillow. And I had been wanting to move for a long time for my little dinky apartment, you know, in, <laughs> in Washington, DC. Um, but DC was really expensive, still is really Mm -hmm. very, very expensive. And so I kind of had held off, but looking at these homeowner um, prices, I was like, this is actually doable here in Philadelphia. Let me see if what the prices are in my grandmother's neighborhood. And it turned out Mm -hmm. my grandmom's house was up for sale. I was like, oh my gosh, what? (laughs) 
So I called my mom. She was like, snag it, you know? <laughs> and um, so, but it turned out that there were squatters in the house. So I couldn't actually go to see it, but I still felt drawn to the neighborhood. And I literally felt my ancestors literally like saying, you can do this. You can do this. It wow. felt like a, a Rubicon I had to cross to own land, own a home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they, they were my, and I really, you know, I, in a lot of ways, I was really inspired by Hiram who mm-hmm. owned a block of homes. I mean, several mm-hmm. homes on a block in Elmwood before it was um, seized by eminent domain. And they paid him pennies on the dollar for what his, his land was worth. We lost our family legacy in that moment. And that community was lost, a black community that was thriving. And he was using those homes to, to welcome people of African descent as they came north in the great migration and give them a place to stop and, and be cared for and, and um, find a home um, here in Philadelphia. But that was all broken up. And he died that year, we believe, of a broken heart. Mm-hmm. And so when I came and walked the community and finally found the house that I'm sitting in right now, um, it just felt right. Mm-hmm. And I think that since you know moving in, I have come home to the city where I was raised really for the first 10 years of my life. I was born in New York City, but raised here from one to 10 years old. And Mm -hmm. I remember, I mean, the land really does speak. I remember the sassafras trees. I haven't seen sassafras Mm -hmm. trees since I left Philadelphia. There's one right outside my window now. Wow, I got goosebumps. (laughs) Yes, it's true. Like I have relationship with this actual land, the Schuylkill River. Like I grew up, we grew up, um, you know, going for walks along the Schuylkill all the time. I'm going for walks in Fairmount Park all the time, you know, and now I go drive through. This is, this is home. It's home. Yeah. Yeah. But more than that, and I just want to say this, and I'll, I'll close this thought with this. Throughout the 1970s, 80s, 90s, the area where I live now was under attack. It was the attack of the drug wars. Mm-hmm. And in the 1970s, Richard Nixon declared the drug wars. I believe it was 1971. He declared open the drug wars. And John Ehrlichman, his legislative director, confessed in a 1995 interview that was finally published in the 2000s. He confessed that those drug wars were not actually about getting drugs off the street. In fact, it was the opposite. Those drug wars were about giving the pretext, the political pretext, to be able to go in and break up the Black community and hippies, because those were the two political foes that were against Nixon. So Nixon targeted them, pumped drugs into their neighborhoods, okay, and then used that as a pretext to crack down on them and, mm-hmm. and get Black people, basically break up families and get Black men off the streets, put them in jail. And Reagan carried that forward. So in my family, my uncle dropped dead of an overdose of heroin in the 1970s, one block from where I'm standing, where I, where I sit right now. And in the 1990s, early 1990s, um, my grandmother was beaten to death by a crack addict after crack was pumped into this community by the mafia, by the police, by small town, small time drug dealers. She, we lost her to the drug wars. 
And I came here to speak to a church right around the corner from where I'm sitting right now. And it was my, my cousin's church. He was the pastor. And I remember in 19, I think it was in 2000. And we drove through the community. Of course, my grandmother was, had been gone then by, for seven years. We weren't going to visit her. We were just driving through to go home, going back out again. And I realized this community is a burned out war zone. Like all you saw were, it wasn't just broken windows. It was no windows. It was no doors. It was boarded up windows in some case and boarded up doors. It was a ghost town. And yet there were still people living here. And I remember saying to my, my mom, like, what happened? What happened? And I didn't find out till much later what happened was the drug wars. Right. It, it desolated this vibrant, thriving community. It made it a war zone. And then the city neglected it for decades. Just let it rot. Let it rot. Let the houses rot. Let the people rot. And then they declared urban renewal. And urban renewal, as Dr. Mindy Fullilove says, actually means urban removal right. of people of African descent from the land that they had been on for a century now. And that's really what's happened is gentrification has just been like a tidal wave in this area. Yeah. And when I walked the neighborhood, that's what led me to come back is I, I said, no, no, mm. no, you don't get to have this land and just right. do whatever you want with it. We have to reclaim this land. Um, the people whose families were here once. And at the very least, we need to make it very clear what happened here, who was here, mm. tell their stories and make sure that those stories live on. So that people who are moving in with their lattes and dogs and dog grooming places and, and you know, walking the streets at all hours, um, which is not something that anybody ever did before, but white folk, man, they know nobody's going to touch them. Because if they do, mm-hmm. right, those right. folks are going to jail. Whoever touches a white person is going to go to jail. Right. So uh, we wanted to make sure, I want to make sure that my neighbors know the story of this community. Yes. They know the legacy upon which they stand. Yes, that is holy and sacred work. And wow, that is um, so inspiring. Um, So my last question, and I I, I just want to ask you sort of about the central question that you ask in your book, and that is, how do we repair what race broke in the world? Mm -hmm. You can talk to us about that. Yeah, repair requires three major things. Repair is going to require some deep truth-telling and Mm. truth-telling requires truth-seeking right truth-seeking requires humility Mm. because you have to have come to the place where you understand that you don't understand at all Mm. you don't know then there's important things that you don't know so you seek you seek the truth and i think that our nation has to enter into a truth-seeking and truth-listening and then a truth-telling process. Um, The second thing that needs to happen, once we know what happened and how everything was broken, then we need to repair it. And that means we need reparations. Reparations is simply repentance. That's what it is. Repentance, we know from, you know, youth group is Mm -hmm. just simply to turn and walk another direction. That's what it means to repent. Literally, it means to turn around 
and walk 180 degrees the other direction. You see, what we need to repent of is the policy decisions that we've made, the laws we've passed, the structures and institutions that we've built that have determined and did it in order to um, create, maintain, and secure white male power. Everything from the very first decision to keep those 20 and odd Angolan men who were pirated off of a ship bound for Mexico and brought to Point Comfort, Virginia, um, we could have turned them back and said, you know what, we don't, we don't do this here. Take them back to Angola where they're from so they can have a, li- a good thriving life. We didn't. We made the decision to exploit. So there in that first colony, the, the decision was made to exploit the labor of people of African descent. And as a result, create right there in that first thread, non-democracy. So that when, by the time we get to, uh, you know, the Revolutionary War and the Constitution, we had another choice. We could have decided we are going to be a true democracy. Yes, under colonization, we had slavery. Yes, in the last hundred years, slavery has begun to explode in our on our continent, on in our nation. But we can do this. We can switch and become another kind of economy. We can become um, a truly competitive dem- democratic economy where everyone has an opportunity to thrive. But we didn't do that. Instead, our legislators, with 1,700 of which from that time all the way up to 1920, were slave owners, Mm -hmm. legislated for their own benefit. And so some of them, you know, some of them pushed for incremental freeing of slaves, but most of them did not. And that's why we never got that. We never really got that. Mm -hmm. So in 1877, we made a choice to end Reconstruction, this era where we had more than 2,000 elected African-American officials all over the country, mostly in the South, including senators, more senators, Black senators than have ever been in, in, in the Senate since, were, in, were there in 1870, right? So mm-hmm. 1875, 1876. But in 1877, there was a compromise that was made. In order to get the, the South to play with the North well, the North said, we'll pull the troops, the federal troops out of the South and you can deal with your race problem in your way. And they did. And their way was the Klan. Mm-hmm. Their way was the laws that were passed in South Carolina that limited people of African descent to work in only two sectors, the fields or the house, domestic labor or field labor, literally illegal for a black person to work in any other trade in South Carolina, following directly following the end of of reconstruction. What were they trying to do? They were, they made a choice to try to reestablish slaveocracy. They did not have to do that. They did not have Mm -hmm. to do that. So, so the point of repair of the book now calling for repair is that our nation now stands at a crossroads. We literally are making this year the choice right now. We're in the middle of making the choice about whether or not we will be a democracy going forward or not. Whether or not we will allow every vote to be counted or not. 
And once again, people of African descent are going to be the determination. If we are able, if our votes are free and fair, then America has a chance to be a democracy. If, if we do the work to repair what the racial hierarchies of human belonging broke in our systems and structures, our education system, our, our sanitation systems, our energy systems, our transportation systems, our food systems, you just name it, all of the systems, healthcare. Mm -hmm. If we have uh, what they say in, in, uh, in uh, Spanish, in Latina, uh, Latinx communities, if we have the ganas mm -hmm. <laughs> to make the change, mm -hmm. to be, make a decision to be right. another kind of a society, to live together differently in the world, now is the time. There'll be no mm -hmm. greater opportunity than what we have right now to make that change. Mm. So reparations is simply repentance and repentance is required in order for right. us to be made, made well. And the last piece is forgiveness because there are things which can never be repaired and which can never be restored. Like the communities like Elmwood, the black community that was busted up by that eminent domain, it's never gonna come back together. So if I hold on to that and demand the restoration of that, I am the one who suffers. So forgiveness is not for the sake of the white folk. Right. Forgiveness is for our sake. It's for the right. sake of those who have been oppressed because forgiveness cuts the tie between mm. us. It releases me from needing them to do anything for me to be made well. Because mm. once I forgive them, once I release them from their debt that they cannot pay, then I turn to God and I say, okay, God, ante up. Mm. And you know what? God is happy to ante up because God wants us, wants our needs to be met. Right. God has what it takes to fill those needs. Mm. Amen. Thank you so much, Lisa, for this incredible book and um, for pouring all of yourself into it and um, for yeah, just giving us um, such an incredible look into your family, but also just the history of, of you know, this country. And so American family, right? Right, right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, yes, you, it was wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening to The Protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.